This is section thirty five of Mark Twain, a biography, volume two. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mark Twain, a biography by Albert Bigelow Payne. Chapter one hundred thirty nine financial and literary by a statement made on the first of january eighteen eighty two of mark twain's disbursements for the preceding year it is shown that considerably more than one hundred thousand dollars had been expended during that twelve months it is a large sum for an author to pay out in one year it would cramp most authors to do it and it was not the best financing even for mark twain it required all that the books could earn all the income from the various securities and a fair sum from their principal there is a good deal of biography in the statement of the amount expended forty six thousand dollars represented investments but of this comfortable sum less than five thousand dollars would cover the legitimate purchases the rest had gone in the ventures from whose born no dollar would ever return also a large sum had been spent for the additional land and for improvements on the home somewhat more than thirty thousand dollars altogether while the home life had become more lavish the establishment had grown each year to a larger scale the guests and entertainments had become more and more numerous until the actual household expenditure required about as much as the books and securities could earn it was with the increased scale of living that clemens had become especially eager for some source of commercial profit something that would yield a return not in paltry thousands but hundreds of thousands like colonel sellers he must have something with millions in it almost any proposition that seemed to offer these possible millions appealed to him and in his imagination he saw the golden freshet pouring in his natural taste was for a simple inexpensive life yet in his large hospitality and in a certain boyish love of grandeur he gloried in the splendor of his entertainment the admiration and delight of his guests there were always guests they were coming and going constantly clemens used to say that he proposed to establish a bus line between their house and the station for the accommodation of his company he had the southern hospitality much company appealed to a very large element in his strangely compounded nature for the better portion of the year he was willing to pay the price of it whether in money or in endurance and mrs clemens heroically did her part she loved these things also in her own way she took pride in them and realized that they were a part of his vast success yet in her heart she often longed for the simpler life above all for the farm life at elmira her spirit cried out for the rest and comfort there in one of her letters she says the house has been full of company and i have been whirled around how can a body help it oh i cannot help sighing for the peace and quiet of the farm this is my work and i know that i do very wrong when i feel chafed by it but how can i be right about it sometimes it seems as if the simple sight of people would drive me mad i am all wrong if i would simply accept the fact that this is my work and let other things go i know i should not be so fretted but i want so much to do other things to study and do things with the children and i cannot i have the best french teacher that i ever had and if i could give any time to it i could not help learning french 
when we reflect on the conditions we are inclined to say how much better it would have been to have remained there among the hills in that quiet inexpensive environment to have let the world go but that was not possible the game was of far larger proportions than any that could be restricted to the limits of retirement and the simpler round of life mark twain's realm had become too large for his court to be established in a cottage it is hard to understand that in spite of a towering fame mark twain was still not regarded by certain american arbiters of reputations as a literary fixture his work was not yet recognized by them as being of important meaning and serious purport in boston at that time still the athens of america he was enjoyed delighted in but he was not honored as being quite one of the elect howells tells us that in proportion as people thought themselves refined they questioned that quality which all recognize in him now but which was then the inspired knowledge of the simple-hearted multitude even at the atlantic dinners his place was below the salt a place of honor but not of the greatest honor he did not sit on the dais with emerson longfellow holmes whittier howells and aldrich we of a later period who remember him always as the center of every board the one supreme figure his splendid head and crown of silver hair the target of every eye find it hard to realize the cambridge conservatism that clad him figuratively always in motley and seated him lower than the throne itself howells clearly resented this condition and from random review corners had ventured heresy now in eighteen eighty two he seems to have determined to declare himself in a large free way concerning his own personal estimate of mark twain he prepared for the century magazine a biographical appreciation in which he served notice to the world that mark twain's work considered even as literature was of very considerable importance indeed whether or not howells then realized the inspired knowledge of the multitude and that most of the nation outside of the counties of suffolk and essex already recognized his claim is not material very likely he did but he also realized the mental dusk of the cultured uninspired and his prerogative to enlighten them his century article was a kind of manifesto a declaration of independence no longer confined to the obscurities of certain book notices where of course one might be expected to stretch friendly favor a little for a popular atlantic contributor in the open field of the century magazine howells ventured to declare mark twain's humor is as simple in form and as direct as the statesmanship of lincoln or the generalship of grant when i think how purely and wholly american it is i am a little puzzled at its universal acceptance why in fine should an english chief justice keep mark twain's books always at hand why should darwin have gone to them for rest and refreshment at midnight when spent with scientific research i suppose that mark twain transcends all other american humorists in the universal qualities he deals very little with the pathetic which he nevertheless knows very well how to manage as he has shown notably in the true story of the old slave mother 
but there is a poetic lift in his work even when he permits you to recognize it only as something satirized there is always the touch of nature the presence of a sincere and frank manliness in what he says the companionship of a spirit which is at once delightfully open and deliciously shrewd elsewhere i have tried to persuade the reader that his humor is at its best the foamy break of the strong tide of earnestness in him but it would be limiting him unjustly to describe him as a satirist and it is hardly practicable to establish him in people's minds as a moralist he has made them laugh too long they will not believe him serious they think some joke is always intended this is the penalty as dr holmes has pointed out of making one's first success as a humorist there was a paper of mark twain's printed in the atlantic monthly some years ago and called the facts concerning the late carnival of crime in connecticut which ought to have won popular recognition of the ethical intelligence underlying his humor it was of course funny but under the fun it was an impassioned study of the human conscience hawthorne or bunyan might have been proud to imagine that powerful allegory which had a grotesque force far beyond either of them yet it quite failed of the response i had hoped for it and i shall not insist here upon mark twain as a moralist though i warn the reader that if he leaves out of the account an indignant sense of right and wrong a scorn of all affectations and pretense an ardent hate of meanness and injustice he will come infinitely short of knowing mark twain howells realized the unwisdom and weakness of dogmatic insistence and the strength of understatement to him mark twain was already the moralist the philosopher and the statesman he was willing that the reader should take his time to realize these things the article with his subject's portrait as a frontispiece appeared in the century for september eighteen eighty two if it carried no new message to many of its readers it at least set the stamp of official approval upon what they had already established in their hearts end of chapter one hundred and thirty nine financial and literary read by john greenman